But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, there we are, open them back to Acts. We're going to be in chapter 24 today as we nearing the end of the book. As you're going to notice, we are skipping just small little sections of Scripture, just kind of more the travel log stuff or stuff that's going to be repeated or easily summarized for the next few weeks just to bring this guy to a close here. But it's been wonderful to be in the book of Acts for the last year and a bit, uh, and it's going to be great to see it go, but also sad. It's been a wonderful time as uh, we talk about how the birth of the church and the mission movement that is still our mission here today to see souls come to Christ, not just to exist to be a country club, amen? Yeah. All right, so we're going to start in verse 24. And what you're going to notice, what we've been noticing over the last few weeks, is that there has been a ton of conflict happening in the book of Acts. And one thing that you need to remember when we're looking at all this conflict and the conflict we're going to even read about today, we need to keep at the front and center as we read this book, is that the whole book of Acts is driven by this one momentous truth. And that is that the bright light of Christ has dawned, and through his gospel, he is now redeeming the lost, weary sinners, and Acts tells the story of God pouring out his blessing on all the nations through his gospel. It's a story about light overcoming darkness. And as we read in Paul's letter to the, uh, to the Colossians, he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, into the kingdom of light, whom we have redemption and forgiveness of our sins. That was Paul's way of describing the blessing of the gospel message, the outflow of what the gospel does. In Christ, there is redemption. In Christ, there is forgiveness from sins. In Christ, there is deliverance from the dominion of darkness. And that's, what, that's why the book of Acts has so much conflict in it. Because when Christ pours out his blessing and deliverance, the dominion of darkness puts up a fight. When Christ sends you and I out as faithful servants, as lights in the darkest places of our world, you better expect that the dominion, the kingdom of darkness will attack us. Because what we're doing is as we go out into the darkest places of drumheller of our world, what we're doing is extending the kingdom of God wherever we go and we're taking back enemy territory and he will fight. So all the conflict and action, uh, action in the book of Acts is because Christ is on the move. You've probably watched the movies or read the books about the Chronicle of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What do they say? Aslan is on the move. Well, Christ, Christ is on the move in the book of Acts. And all this conflict that Paul finds himself in becomes God's way and means to spread the gospel blessing throughout the world through all this pain and hurt. So as you're going to see later, later, all this conflict started with Paul and it will culminate with Paul going to Rome. That was Jesus's plan for Paul from the beginning. We saw that last week as Jesus stood in verse 11, chapter 20, or yeah, chapter 23, as Jesus stood intimately next to Paul and he stood with him beside him and said, be of courage. 
You will be my faithful servant in Rome, just as you were in Jerusalem. So we see that this was Jesus' plan. So this conflict becomes Paul's sort of bus ticket to Rome. God is using this pain and this suffering to bring Paul to Rome, to bring about his ultimate will for Paul. And we also see that through this conflict that God brings Paul to share the gospel before rulers, which exactly what Jesus said was his plan for Paul. If you remember back in Acts 9, so many months ago, Jesus said that Paul is his chosen instrument to carry Christ's name before Gentiles and kings and Israel. And now in our passage today that we're going to read in a moment, what do we see? We're going to see Paul standing before Felix, the Roman governor of Judea. And just like Paul experienced conflict, we need to be prepared as well to experience conflict. We need to know this truth that God is using every conflict we face sovereignly to advance his kingdom. What does that mean for us? That means your suffering, your pain, your questions of why are not meaningless. They have a purpose and God is using them in ways that you can't even imagine. It's commonly said that God is doing 20,000 things in your life a day, and you're maybe just aware of 20 of them. God is sovereignly using the pain and suffering that you're feeling, your tiredness, your overwhelmness that you're feeling today or this past week, or you might feel in the future to extend his kingdom as you become more refined as his faithful servant. So the question is, how do we prepare to face conflict like Paul did? How do we bring glory to God in the midst of our conflict? And as we examine this passage, we're going to see three things, and I think they will help us prepare. The first one is that we would know and be aware of the tactics of darkness. When light comes into the dominion of darkness, the dominion of darkness fights back. And one thing we have learned about the book of Acts is that darkness likes to fight dirty. Okay, darkness doesn't follow the rules. In fact, this trial is happening before Felix because the last time that uh, uh, Paul had a conflict with the Jewish uh, council, we saw last week that violent chaos erupted and Paul had to be rescued from the midst of those men and, uh, and taken to safe passage to Felix so he could have a proper trial, which was his right as a Roman citizen. So with all of that background and buildup in mind, when we get to verse 1, we see that five days have went by since his last trial and his safe passage to Felix. And the high priest Ananias and his little gang come along and they bring a spokesman with them, Tertullus. And Tertullus is a lawyer. He's a lawyer and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. So Paul and his accusers have calmed down a little bit. And now they're going to try a more respectable plan of attack. But it's still dirty. They're not going to try to ensue chaos like they did last time because that didn't work. So now they're going to go through the legal court system. So how are they being dirty? Well, they lawyered up. Well, that's not wrong. But they got the smooth talking Tertullus now to bring their accusations against Paul. And Tertullus appears to be incapable of sharing the truth. Just look at verse 2. He says, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, O excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. What's he doing? This is flattery. 
Yeah, he's buttering him up. He's, he's, he's doing flattering. And, and don't get me wrong, it's normal in that day to express respect to your governors and whatnot. We maybe need a little bit more of that sometimes today. But, uh, but this was, this was uh, the case uh, here. But he was uh, buttering up. He was going beyond what you would see from just respect. He was trying to get his way. And it's important that we see his buttering up because it's how he is going to frame his case against Paul. First, Tertullus establishes that the nation of Israel is at peace because of Felix. And this is the first lie because if you read history and you read Roman historians, not even Christian or Jewish historians, you read Roman historians, what they have to say about Felix is that he was one of the worst governors that they ever had on their books. Felix will later in history after this time be fired by Nero. And the reasoning is laughable because he's fired for being too cruel. Now, if you're fired by Nero, who was the cruelest Roman emperor on their papers, and you're fired for being too cruel, you might have some daddy issues, okay? There might be some problems in your life, and you're taking it out on somebody else. So Felix was fired later on for being too cru uh, cruel, and then Tutila says something incredible, that any Jew in that room would have been gobsmacked if they were a true Jew to serve the Lord. He used the word foresight towards Felix, that he was reigning from his foresight. And this word would be the same word that we would translate from Greek for the word providence, God's providence. And the Jews would usually reserve this word in Hebrew, not for pagan kings, not for rulers who were pagan, but for God. His, and, 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 and directly towards his foresight, his knowledge, and his plan for history. This is far more than just buttering up. He is putting Felix on the level of God. So Tertullus doesn't just lie about Felix. He also portrays the very God and his temple whom he's there to defend and accuse Paul for defiling. His whole motives are self-defeating to his argument. He has no morals. He just wants to win no matter the cost. And one of the tactics of darkness is this. It will ally with, the with any power to be to fight the spread of the gospel through lies, through accusations, and through their own idolatry, which we're seeing on the forefront here. Another tactic of darkness is that Tutelus calls good evil, and he calls evil good indirectly. Look what he says in verse 4 to 6. He says, But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So what does he do? He calls Paul a plague. And the word conveys that Paul is, yes, annoying, that he's frustrating, that he's troublesome, and that his words and his teaching and his ideologies are spreading like a pandemic. And that's a word that we should all just groan at right now. We are tired of hearing that word. But that's what he's saying. He's saying that his words, his teachings are spreading like a plague, which, uh, 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 which in a sense, Tertullus was correct. The gospel is spreading. It's, it, it, Christ is on the move, but Tertullus and the Jews claim that it's a spread of a mischievous and malicious cult, which is just more lies against Paul. So when the gospel goes out, 
This is what it does. It frees people from the domain of darkness and then reconciles those same people with a holy God and then it gives them ability to turn their back on the darkness and walk in God's love and his righteousness freely. It's the spread of light in the darkness can't stand it, and we see that on full display. And then he accuses Paul for stirring up riots and unrest, which was just another lie from Tertullus. Paul was preaching the gospel, and this made the Jews very angry. And then in turn, the Jews were the ones who stirred up the mob and caused the unrest and then blamed it on Paul. This would be equivalent to one of you getting mad at me in this room, throwing a glass vase at my head, missing, and it shatters on the back of the wall, and then you get mad at me for the mess. You did that. You made the mess. That's your problem. So this is what they are doing. This is what Tertullus was doing. And do you see the tactic? What he's trying to do is he's building the case in order to make Paul the scapegoat for the unrest and rioting in Judea. He's sneaky. And he's buttering up uh, at the beginning and saying, all this peace, all of this stability that we're feeling between Israel and Rome is because of you, O excellent Felix. But all this unrest, all these riots you're hearing about, well, that's not because of your leadership, Felix. That's because of this guy who's standing before you. He's trying to make Paul the scapegoat. And remember, Rome hates riots. Rome hates unrest. And they will squish, even at the breath of a riot, anyone who is trying to lead one. So he's like a snake, and he's lying like one, and he's appealing to Felix in order to pin this on Paul when it was actually the Jews, and from what we know, it was actually Felix as well from the way he led. He, gave, he attributed it to the unrest in the Middle East at this time. So scapegoating is a common tactic of darkness because there is no forgiveness of sins in the domain of darkness. There's none. There is no savior that can save you. So this tactic of darkness tries to make someone else pay for their sins. And we see this throughout history a lot. From pagan worship to past and present governments, they all try to just pin it on someone else so they look clean. No, 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 it wasn't me, it was the NDP. No, 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 it wasn't me, it was the liberals. No, 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 it wasn't me, it was the conservatives. They're always trying to pin it on somebody else. Somebody else is the issue. And we just eat it up like all the propaganda that they put to us. But, but in Christ's kingdom, on the contrary, there is no scapegoating. Because it was done away with once and for all. Because in a sense, Jesus was our scapegoat. All of sin, all of your sin, all of my sin, past, present, and future, was poured upon Christ. And the wrath of God crushed him for you and me. So that we could have life eternal with God the Father. He was the ultimate scapegoat. So in God's kingdom, there is no longer shifting of blame because Jesus took our blame. Amen? Come on. Jesus took your blame. Amen. That's exciting. I know it's a little chilly in here, but don't go to sleep. Okay? Only in him there is true atonement and forgiveness. Only in him are we free to turn our backs on the kingdom of darkness and free to walk in his joy and forgiveness everlasting. So how does learning about these tactics help us walk faithfully? Well, firstly, we learn outside of Christ, without the forgiveness of sins, we are just as bad as those ones who are living outside of him. 
We learn not to be surprised when we are faithful that we might also be accused of evil. Jesus told us that this would happen. As we live faithfully to him, the world will say that you're outdated, you're antiquated, your book is just made up and you're following it just as a moralistic exercise. Knock it off. It's time to come into the 20th first century. We also learn that the gospel is the answer to evil scapegoating. We call all to turn to Christ because Christ is the answer. This is not just a Sunday school quiz. Jesus is the answer always. All of ours, he is the only sacrifice for all of our forgiveness, past, present, and future. We learn also that those who often claim to faithfully represent God, like these Jews in our scenario today, will at times be the very same people who betray his word and ally with darkness and accuse you and me in this church of evil. It's sad when this happens. We need to learn not to be surprised by these tactics, but rather we need to learn to expect them and be ready for them. R.C. Sproul, back in 2010, wrote something that I would consider prophetic. And coming from a Baptist, that may be a scary word. But I think he was speaking prophetically about where we are today. He says, that might be a little small for you, but if we are faithful to Christ in the public square, we will be regarded as the plague. Notice he says, in the public square. Not just in between these four walls, but out living our life for Christ. We will be regarded as the plague. We have enjoyed a tremendous measure of freedom and protection in this country for century, centuries, but the day is coming when those protections will go away. And we need to be ready for it. Because whenever people are faithful to the gospel, the world sees them first as pests, and I would argue that's where we're at, and then as the plague, which was the charge brought against Paul. What a powerful word from R.C. Sproul. And it couldn't be more true. The day is coming but this isn't fear tactics. We don't need to fear. Christ has already won. Amen? We must not fear. The progressive agendas of this world will force their way onto the church. It's coming. And some churches have already sold out. And those so-called churches, because that's not what they are anymore, they will stand before a holy God with blood on their hands and be damned for leading those astray, saying, hey, hey, this is just cultural. You don't have to listen to this. Live any way you want. What did Jesus say? It is better for you to hang a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea than lead one of my little ones astray. Those so-called churches who have sold out to the progressive agendas of this world will stand condemned before a holy God unless they repent. Amen? I'm not just trying to be hard for the sake of hard. This is important because it's coming. And we will stand against it no matter the consequence. Because we need to be ready to declare the hope that lives in us. And declare to the world the good news of the love of Christ for sinners. That there's only reconciliation and deliverance found in Jesus. Not in taking your, your little sharpie and taking out sections of scripture so you can just live better and feel happy about yourself. That's a road to destruction. Because it's wide. We need to boldly claim Christ no matter the outcome. Which brings me to my next point, which 
we will examine the defense of Paul, and we can see how we can also make our defense for the gospel as well. If we look closely at this passage from the viewpoint of maybe a modern-day trial, what we see is that Ananias and his party have a lawyer, but Paul doesn't. Paul is basically representing himself. Paul is making his own defense, but it is as though the Holy Spirit himself is acting as Paul's lawyer, his advocate, and giving him the words to speak. And I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. We remember our Savior's words back in Matthew 10, 18 to 20. He says, And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak. Why? Because what you are to say for I will set up, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. What a powerful verse that is. Jesus is saying this would happen. And now we're seeing it fulfilled in Paul. Christ is giving him the words to speak in his, in his time of need. And it's not Paul speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So this is quite interesting. The Jews have Tertullus, the smooth-talking guy, but Paul has the Holy Spirit. <laughs> what? Better can you have. Tertullus shoots arrows of accusation against Paul. The Holy Spirit gives Paul a dynamite defense. This is important because we have to remember that we don't just have words on pages. Okay? This is not a dead religion. Jesus is alive and his word is alive, active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. This is important because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, church. Do you believe that? God Almighty lives in you by his spirit. What a life-altering understanding. The spirit helps us. He encourages us. And he's with us through the thick and thin, whatever we may face, as we see with Paul here. And if you're in Christ, guess what? You have the spirit. There's no quote-unquote second blessing. You don't have to come up front and all the elders have to lay hands on you and you have to speak in tongues or any of that garbage. No. You have the Holy Spirit now if you are in Christ. And you're never alone because of that. He is with you and he's going to help you. And that's why we're told to not be anxious. Because we're never alone. So what does Paul say in his defense? Like Tertullus, he opens his defense by expressing respect to Felix, but not flattery. Here's what he says in light of everything Tertullus accused him of. And then you'll see in verses 8 to 9 that the Jews kind of reinforce that. And now we're going to pick up in verse 10, which says, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So Paul is being respectful to the office that Felix holds. And that's important. He's not technically being respectful to Felix, but to the office. Because Paul understands that all governmental authority, all kings, emperors, whatever they might want to call themselves, all their authority is delegated from who? From God. And all of it is subject to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who is Jesus Christ. So because of that theology, his understanding of that, he cheerfully makes his defense in light of that. Let's read his defense together, picking up in verse 11. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in synagogues or in the city. 
city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets." having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and there, uh, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present an offering. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Uh, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing there among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So what amazes me about this defense of Paul's is that even in the face of all this horrific, uh, these events that happened to Paul, he still details it cheerfully before Felix. And how is that? Because remember what I say, all words in the scripture are put there uh, uh, not by chance. They have a meaning. So when he says cheerfully, that's not Luke's way of just saying, well, let's just make everyone else feel bad when they're not cheerful. It's not because Paul has thick skin. Paul is able to be good cheer because God was filling him up with what was lacking. And it's the same thing that we feel that we're lacking when we face great conflict in our life. And that's hope. Will this ever end? Just as God filled up Paul with hope in this moment, he will also fill you up with hope in the face of all your conflicts, all your hardships in your life. If you are truly lacking nothing in Jesus. So Paul writes this about this hope in Romans 15, 13. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in Paul's defense is done with good courage, which is the fruit of his hope in Jesus. And we need to know, if we're going to be a church, if we're going to be a people who stand, we also need to be a people who know where their joy is anchored. Stoic reserve is not enough. It's just simply not enough. We need a living hope in Christ who loved us, who with the joy that was set before Jesus endured the cross on our behalf, endured the wrath of God on our behalf. And it says the joy was set before him. We need that same joy that Christ willfully went to the cross with and laid down his life. There is nothing that you and I can do better to prepare ourselves to stand in this generation than to meditate on what Christ did for you to secure your salvation and to secure your joy. Paul then makes his defense by stating the truth and refuting Tertullus on every point. Tertullus said Paul was stirring up riots. Paul said that has only, he's only been in town for 12 days and they didn't find him stirring up anything. Tertullus said Paul was trying to profane the temple. Paul said false witnesses said that about him, but he actually went under ceremonial purification. Why would he go through all that hardship and expense if he was just planning on defiling the temple? Tertullus said if you expect or sorry, if you examine Paul, you will find him guilty. Paul says, there's absolutely no ground to your accusations. 
<laughs> examine away in a sense. Tertullus then accuses Paul of being a ringleader of the Jewish sect of the Nazarenes. Paul responds with this great confession about the church in the middle of his speech. In verse 14, stating his devotion is to the Old Testament writings, the fathers and the prophets, and that his hope is in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And because of that fact, in verse 16, Paul goes to great pains to have a clear conscience between, before both God and man. Paul's defense demonstrates to us his commitment to the truth. He was committed to the truth because he worshiped and believed the one who revealed his truth in the law and the prophets. He was committed to truth because he met Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and whom himself said about himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul contrary to what Andy Stanley would tell you to do, did not unhitch himself from the Old Testament. He grounded himself in it. Paul saw Christianity as completely consistent with the Old Testament because the Old Testament was summed up with the truth of Christ. So because of that, he took great pains to have a clear conscience. And we too, church, are living in a time when our consciences are constantly threatened by the denial of the reality of truth. The world promotes this idea, and maybe you've heard this, that, well, that's your truth, and that's, this is my truth, and that's their truth. Don't, don't, uh, don't force your truth upon my truth. It's all just relativism. It's in our schools, it's in our TV shows, it's in our movies, it's in our politicians' speeches, it's everywhere. Relativism, it's a poisonous because it sears our consciences. Did you know that about relativism? That it sears our consciences? We're living in a time when it's considered, hear this, humble to deny the ability to even know the truth. Oh, you're so humble. You don't know the truth. Do you know what that is? That's just fake humility because there's nothing more humbling than the truth. I can say all I want that I'm good looking, but until I look in that mirror, the truth will confront me, okay? And I will be humbled. It's fake humility, and it only serves one possible thing. And the first thing it does is it denies, it denies that there is truth. Because humility is only possible at first if we deny that, or if we deny that God has been gracious to reveal his truth to us. And fake humility serves to pervert that, and then it praises lies on top of that. So like Paul, we should never look back once we've been corrected by truth, once truth has corrected us. In order to stand, we need to stand upon the truth. And Paul saw that truth was foundational to the understanding of what the church is. He says in 1 Timothy 3.15, he says that if, if, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. So first he says the church is the house of the living God. And then what does he say about the church? It's a pillar and buttress of the truth. So what does that mean? So as the world stumbles in the dark, as the world sinks in the shifting sands of relativism, the church is called by Christ to shine as light in the dark and to stand firm as a pillar and a buttress of the truth so that those who are sinking, those who are groping away in the dark might grab upon truth. If we sell out, 
to the world, then all we're doing is sinking with them. And we're not helping them. We're not being a pillar that they can hold on to. We're just dragging them down quicker. We must be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Which brings me to my last point as I close, which is the fear of rulers. After Paul makes his defense, we read that Felix puts the trial on pause until uh, Lysias uh, is to come. But it turns out that that's a lie because Lysias never comes. And then we get a hint of Felix's real motives in these next few verses. Let's read together, picking up in verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, which is Christian uh, church, put them off saying, when uh, Lysias, uh, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. After some days... Felix came with his wife, Adrisla, uh, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ. And as he reasoned, uh, as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. There's his motive. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Remember that. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and that's not a Christmas guy, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left him in prison. It seems as though Felix's true motives were, one, he did truly want to calm down the Jewish party that wanted to see Paul prosecuted. And secondly, as Luke tells us, Felix was looking for some money. He wanted a bribe. He was a corrupted politician who was driven by greed. But look even how God uses these bad situations for good. Felix is holding Paul for poor motives, but by that, he gets to spend time with Paul. He ends up spending time with him. And so Paul is able to bear witness to Felix and instruct Felix in Christ. And Paul was kept in uh, prison by Felix for two years. And the, the Bible tells us they met often and conversed. Maybe he was waiting to get money. Who knows? But he was hearing the gospel message. God used Paul, the prisoner, to bring correction by the gospel to Felix. God was using the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. God was using prisoner Paul to show Felix that not even governors or kings can boast in the presence of God Almighty. Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And each one of those things would have made Felix shake in his boots as he saw his reflection in the mirror of Scripture. Righteousness, you say? Felix, you are the cruelest ruler in the Roman Empire. Self-control? Well, extra-biblical history tells us that Felix actually stole his wife, convinced her to leave her husband so he could marry her. But then Paul comes to the coming judgment of God. And that becomes too much for Felix. That's when he stands up frightened and alarmed. And maybe Paul sh uh, shared similar words like this, talking about how every tongue will confess, every knee shall bow, and every man will give account of himself to God. And after hearing words like that, Felix, our verses says that he became alarmed. The word alarm means terrified. It's the same word, actually, that the Bible uses only when talking about when people would meet angels. The, the angels that would terrify them. 
And he was shaken in his boots. And hearing Paul speak about the coming judgment, Felix had an appropriate response, which was fear. And all people, all rulers will give an account before a holy God. And, he, and we who are in Christ, we rejoice and we revel at the fact that Christ has freed us from that. But just because we will stand before God blameless in Christ, we should also be motivated to share the good news with those around us outside of Christ who are in danger of standing before this holy, transcendent God on their own accord. Because if they stand on their own accord, they will be crushed. You might ask why Paul was teaching Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And here's why. It's the same that he had for the Jews. Paul wanted Felix to bow his knee to Christ and be saved. That was the hope. Paul's hope was the same hope that we see in Psalm 72, 11, talking about may all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. We need to start praying this for our leaders, church. Start praying that our leaders would, be, would, would come into submission and conformity with Christ. Our leaders are not above Jesus. And they need salvation just as much you and I do. doesn't matter how demonized you have them in your mind. They still deserve salvation. Amen? Do you actually believe that? Would you share the gospel with someone who you don't like, like one of our politicians? Because they need, I'm not saying names. You filled in the blank there. This account with Felix shows of our need and our obedience to share the good news. And it results might not be what we wanted. Notice Felix doesn't surrender to Christ. He doesn't ask Paul for the antidote. Rather, he tells him to shut up and go away. <laughs> and I'm glad that they put that in the Bible because I think oftentimes we think, well, I'm going out to share the gospel. I want to see results. You might not. You might get this. And that's okay because you are being faithful to your calling as a witness to Christ. So if you're here today, and you're watching online or whatever, and you're still in the dominion of darkness, this is your hope. Jesus can deliver you from that darkness and bring you into his kingdom of light and forgive you and set you free and reconcile you with God and give you eternal life. He's calling you today, beloved, to come to him and to know his deliverance. So if you are outside of his kingdom, it's time to repent and believe on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. God, we thank you that you have called us to stand and stand firm, but you have not called us to do that alone. Father, but rather you say that you are with us, your Holy Spirit indwells in us, and that we're never alone. So Father, when the inevitable happens, when, when the world comes against us and tries to clamp down on us, Father, I pray that what comes out of us is not bitter attacks back, but the sweet perfume of your gospel. Oh, Lord, use us humbly. Father, awaken our hearts and awaken the hearts of the men and women that walk the streets of Drumheller every day who do not know you. Father, send revival to our town, and may it start with us. In Jesus' name, amen.